0: Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. This is episode 44 for the month of October 2020. We have almost 150 reviews on iTunes, which is not too bad, but a few more would be helpful. So again, if you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. It really helps others discover the podcast. And if you have articles you want me to read, send them to info at gipearls.com. And always send me comments, suggestions, criticisms. I'm always open to those things. And now let's crack open those journals, shall we? In the United States, fit testing is an acceptable way to look for colon cancer. And when you do fit testing, occasionally some patients end up doing more than one test. And if two of the fit tests are positive, you begin to worry. What happens if only one is positive, meaning there's discordance? Should you be less worried? This was a prospective comparative accuracy study done by the Dutch colon cancer screening program. 20,000 patients did a fit test, but they did two tests instead of one test on the same bowel movement. And if you had one or more positive tests, you were invited to get a colonoscopy. About half got colonoscopy, basically. Surprise, surprise, advanced neoplasia was found at colonoscopy in 500 of eleven hundred and sixty three participants or forty three percent of patients who had two positive fit tests compared to one eighty seven out of eight hundred and eighty three participants or twenty one percent with discordant fit results so almost a quarter had cancer or advanced adenoma, which was defined as adenoma over ten millimeters with twenty five percent villous component and or high grade dysplasia obviously cancer was found in the minority of these patients, but it's surprising that almost a quarter of patients had at least an advanced adenoma. Interesting analysis was that BMI and smoking were two risk factors that popped up as significant on multivariable regression for discordant fit test result. In the discussion, the authors write, quote, obtaining discordant fit results can be attributed to sampling issues because of non-homogeneous distribution of hemoglobin throughout the feces, end quote. But I guess this gives you at least an idea for those patients who had more than one FIT test in a row for some reason. Spleen is the bastard organ of the abdomen that nobody wants to own. I have seen a bunch of consults of patients referred to me for splenic infarcts as a cause of abdominal pain, which often resolves on its own. Not sure why GIs are dealing with this, but I guess it's a cause of abdominal pain, so it's fair. Classic presentation for splenic infarct is acute pain and tenderness in the left upper quadrant or flank area. Thankfully, CT scans are ubiquitous, so it's never a diagnostic dilemma, so we don't order much tests to find these. Question remains, what kind of things cause splenic infarct? This retrospective observational study from South Carolina gives us some statistics on patients with splenic infarcts. First thing that's interesting is that patients don't have to present with left flank or left upper quadrant stabbing pain and tenderness. Only 20% of patients in this case series presented with left upper abdomen pain. 33% of patients didn't have any abdominal pain at all. In terms of predisposing factors, 40% of patients had more than one plausible explanation as to why they got a splenic infarct in the first place. Adding to the cardiometabolic causes and hematologic disorders causes, there were cases of patients with malignancies, celiac or splenic artery atherosclerosis, hypercoagulability, as caused by sepsis or something else, can cause this as well. And just to remind you how serious splenic infarcts can be, patients, at least in this case serious, 20% of patients died in the hospital, presumably not from the splenic infarct itself, but with a splenic infarct. Many of these patients had celiac or splenic atherosclerosis, or even a few cases of arterial dissection or rupture. Anyway, an interesting topic something we don't see every day. Speaking of things you don't see every day, in the U.S., unsedated colonoscopy is not very common. In fact, in this next study, I'll be talking about out of 24,000 colonoscopies, only 179 were unsedated. That's barely 0.7%. As a result, most of the studies showing the benefit of unsedated colonoscopy comes from Europe and Asia, but in many of those studies, the adenoma detection rates have been rather low. So here's a study of what happened in the United States. It is published in the Digestive Diseases and Sciences July issue by the folks from Columbia in New York City. This was a retrospective look at unsedated colonoscopies to find out how good of a procedure it is in terms of quality. Looking at this small number of cases, it is very interesting. Adenoma detection rate was 27.4% for sedated colonoscopies and 212 for unsedated colonoscopies, so lower. Secum intubation rates was also lower at 85% compared to 95.8% for sedated. So I find this very interesting. I would have explained away the, the lower ADR because, at least in my population, these folks tend to be healthier, lower BMIs, not smokers, really healthy people who agreed to do an unsedated procedure. But the lower cecum intubation rate certainly doesn't help here. So I think it could be that these patients were not unsedated for health reasons, meaning they had too many comorbidities to do a sedated procedure. So, what that means is that, at least in the U.S., it appears that sedated colonoscopies reign supreme, not only from patient comfort perspective, but also from the quality metrics perspective. But the truth is, we just don't do them often enough for them to matter at all. And I think that's a mistake. Wouldn't it be wonderful if some fruit or vegetable was good enough by itself to solve constipation? This next paper is one step closer to that dream of mine. Title is Effect of Green Kiwi Fruit on Gas Transit and Tolerance in Healthy Humans. They studied 11 people and what happened to bowel habits if they ate two kiwis a day for two weeks. Then they even went ahead and started infusing gas into these patients to see if sensitivity to bloat was any different in these patients. Results are interesting intake of two kiwis increased the number of bowel movements per day from 1.5 to 1.8. Then the stools became somewhat looser, Bristol 2.8 down to Bristol 3.3. But this part was not significant. No difference in bloat or perception of symptoms or abdominal distension was noted, despite these people being pumped full of gas. So it appears that kiwi fruit can help you go, at least in healthy people. Someone ought to write an R01 on efficacy of various fruits and vegetables on stool frequency, bloating, and their effects on constipation. And this potentially could save government billions of dollars. I guess this episode will be dealing with a lot of things we don't see every day. Hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, an autosomal dominant disease with a prevalence of 1 in 5,000, which means that every GI doc is going to see at least one or two patients every few years for this reason or another. New guidelines came out, and they have several sections outlined, including management of epistaxis, GI bleeding, and anemia, as well as anticoagulation management, and some other interesting sections. I will highlight a few GI-related recommendations for everyone here. One, the expert panel recommends upper endoscopy as the first-line diagnostic test for HHD-related bleeding. This makes sense. So, no jumping straight to colonoscopy, huh? 2. If EGD is negative, consider capsule endoscopy. Recommendation B4 is interesting. Expert panel recommends that endoscopic APC, argon plasma coagulation, be only used sparingly during endoscopy. Now that's interesting. They don't say not to do it, but basically, if you find an AVM and it's bleeding, obviously zap it with APC or maybe even a gold probe. These patients are generally anemic and bleeding when you're doing the procedure. So if you find AVMs, zap them. But after, when the patient is no longer bleeding, don't repeat the scopes just to look for stuff if patient is not bleeding. That's what they mean by sparing use of APC. At least that's what I think. The treatment for GI bleeding-related HHT that's non-endoscopic is antifibrinolytics, meaning tenexamic acid, and the guidelines recommend this. Another thing that they recommend is that endoscopy is done at the tertiary care centers due to risk of brisk epistaxis, or one of the lung AVMs bursting open. There are extensive guidelines here for anticoagulation of these patients, which GI docs mostly won't be dealing with, thankfully. And one more thing. Recommendation D1. Screening for liver vascular malformations should be offered to adults with suspected or definite HHT. Again, we probably won't be ordering this test, but we may hear about this. Since we own the liver, or at least we think we do, Many times the follow-up for these liver vascular malformations will be just monitoring, but other times, depending on symptoms, these could be quite severe and symptomatic, including right heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, etc. A very interesting and rare disease this HHT thing is. A few more guidelines came out. One of them is the clinical practice guideline from AGA on gastrointestinal evaluation of iron deficiency anemia, and this one isn't free from controversy either. This is an in-press article by the time I'm reading it, but it's somewhat important, so I'm doing it before I found it in print. Let's just go over the short seven recommendations that they have, and I will give you my little rant after that. One, in patients with anemia, the AGA recommends using a cutoff of 45 over 15 when using ferritin to diagnose iron deficiency. Meaning, if it's not below 45, it may be anemia based on CBC or something else, but it's not iron deficiency anemia. If the patient, of course, has an inflammatory condition, then it's a different story, since serotonin tends to go up in those conditions. Two, in asymptomatic postmenopausal women and men with iron deficiency anemia, the AGA recommends bidirectional endoscopy over no endoscopy. This is kind of a gimme, and basically we do this all day long in GI. Three, in asymptomatic postmenopausal women with iron deficiency anemia, the AGA suggests bidirectional endoscopy over iron replacement therapy only, meaning don't just throw iron on people, find out why they're losing it or if there's a good reason for it. Four, in patients with iron deficiency anemia without other identifiable etiology after bidirectional endoscopy, the AGA suggests non-invasive testing for helicobacter pylori, followed by treatment, if positive, over no testing. Remember, this is after bidirectional endoscopy, meaning you already were in the stomach, but did nothing, meaning didn't biopsy anything, and just took your scope out and then decided to test them for H. pylori. Okay, great. They said I was going to save my rant for the later, but I guess I'm starting already. Recommendation number five, in patients with iron deficiency anemia, the AGA suggests against use of routine gastric biopsies to diagnose atrophic gastritis. Okay. All right. I see where they're going. That's fine. That's fair. Six, in asymptomatic adult patients with iron deficiency anemia and plausible celiac disease, the AGA suggests initial serological testing followed by a small bowel biopsy only if positive over routine small bowel biopsies. Again, I have a little bit of a problem with this one. And recommendation number seven, in uncomplicated asymptomatic patients with iron deficiency anemia and negative bidirectional endoscopy, the AGA suggests a trial of initial iron supplementation over routine use of video capsule endoscopy. And that one is a pretty good one. Not gonna lie. In terms of strength of evidence, the first two, the ferritin and doing double endoscopy, are strong recommendations, high to moderate evidence, and the rest of recommendations are conditional. Let's talk about the two elephants in the stomach now, one being no biopsies for H. pylori, and the other one being no biopsies for celiac disease. The reason for these recommendations is that they were found not to be cost-effective. So let me get this straight. In the absence of good evidence, they just did a back of the envelope calculation that was obviously not peer reviewed because this was just a committee selecting these guidelines. So nobody had the chance to comment on these and figure this out. And so after this back of the envelope, perfect world cost analysis, they said, okay, so based on this work we've reviewed, we save about 48 bucks per person if we don't p 4 H pylori during endoscopy and do a stool test later or a breath test if we are thinking about other things. But remember, people with iron deficiency anemia could have H. pylori, and we all think it's a good idea to eradicate it. And if you're in a stomach already, why not just take a little piece and save a person a trip to the lab to drop off a stool sample? And I'm sure these guidelines were written for the ideal world, where every iron deficiency patient has nothing else going on, no GERD, no diarrhea, no bloating, and no other symptoms at all. That's not what the real world is like. And it is much more likely that a random patient with anemia would have at least one of these symptoms. And also, the H. pylori prevalence Last time I checked, it was pretty darn high, and I'm sure it's a lot higher in patients with iron deficiency anemia, so why not check for it right there and then? My point is, goal of endoscopy is not only to look for an ulcer, I mean, why not just say a trial of PPI for iron deficiency anemia to see if the anemia resolves? Why even do an upper endoscopy at all if you're not willing to do biopsies? Why not just do a colon and be done with it? Another point is that while there may be cost savings for a patient with no other symptoms but that won't be for patients with other symptoms where things still need to be rolled out. After speaking to a bunch of GI Docs, I think I figure out the intent of these recommendations. If the small bowel looks normal, for example, on very close inspection, using blue light, look underwater as an example to get a closer look, then fine, it's possible that the biopsying the small bowel won't help much. But I'm sure old GI Docs had that revelation one day. Ooh, the biopsies reveal celiac disease and you go, what? The small bowel look completely normal and you do a TTG and lo and behold, there it is, celiac disease. And another point I have for you is that if you're advocating non-invasive testing for things like celiac disease, H. pylori gastritis, you should renumber your guidance statements and have these up front and endoscopies below that, meaning that if you're going through the trouble of checking ferritin, maybe that's the time to check for H. pylori and celiac disease and only then recommend endoscopies if you're not going to do any biopsies. Now, to be fair, I'm not attacking the guideline writers in any way. I think they did a good job of analysis of current data, but I feel that they ignore the real world a little bit, and I don't think a lot of people are going to follow these guidelines, at least to the letter. Maybe just a little. The counter-argument to what I'm saying is that there was the same fight when recommendations were made not to biopsy irregular Z-line in Barrett's, and not to call irregular Z-line Barrett's, It's not a bad argument, but these patients are usually asymptomatic. Here we're talking about anemia, an anemia that's bad enough to have someone undergo endoscopy. So, I don't know. Tell me what you think. Email me or send me a tweet to GI underscore pearls. Moral of the story here is that it's not anemia if ferritin is not low. Do a double for iron deficiency anemia. Think twice before dropping a capsule. And don't biopsy things unless you have a good reason to, which is always a good rule anyway. All right, one more set of guidelines before we leave. I'm not a big fan of probiotics, but the AGA did release a clinical practice guidelines for the role of probiotics in the management of gastrointestinal disorders, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And I actually must say that these guidelines aren't as bad as I thought they were going to be. And because I hate probiotics so much, I actually recruited a friend to help us deal with this topic, and I interview him right after I summarize the guidelines for you. So let's go through the guidance statements. One, in patients with C. diff infection, we recommend the use of probiotics only in the context of clinical trial, and you'll see this clinical trial business is going to be a theme in these guidelines, which is great. Statement two, in adults and children on antibiotic treatment, we suggest the use of some probiotics and combinations, and they also give specific combinations over no or other probiotics for prevention of C. diff infection. Conditional recommendation, low quality of evidence, and we're going to talk about this one later. Statement 3. In adults and children with Crohn's disease, the AGA recommends use of probiotics only in the context of clinical trial. Statement 4. In adults and children with ulcer colitis, the AGA recommends the use of probiotics only in the context of clinical trial. Statement 5. In adults and children with pouchitis, the AGA suggests the use of eight-strain combination. This is kind of an old and good one. Statement 6. In symptomatic children and adults with irritable bowel syndrome, we recommend the use of probiotics only in the context of a clinical trial. Statement 7. In children with acute infectious gastroenteritis, we suggest against the use of probiotics. A little stronger statement this time. And statement 8. Preterm low birth weight infants, we suggest using a combination of probiotics, and they give a list of combinations again, to prevent necrotizing enterocolitis. That's it. So to summarize, almost everything here states that you should only use probiotics in context of a clinical trial. The exceptions are the prevention of necrotizing enterocolitis in children, and the big one is patients on antibiotics, giving them probiotics to prevent C. diff infections. Problem with this recommendation is that the quality of evidence is so poor, some won't even consider this evidence, and this is not due to lack of trying. There are something like 30 clinical trials that looked at this question, whether adding probiotics to antibiotics prevents Clostridioides difficile infection. Here, the technical review gives us clues as to why this recommendation was made. And I'm not going to lie, there are a lot of positive trials here, something like 30 are mentioned, and the meta-analysis of those seems to favor probiotics, which is why this recommendation is made. But if you look at the raw data for each trial, you begin to see a pattern emerge. The smaller the trial, the more likely it was positive. The larger, the wider the confidence interval was, and more likely to cross the threshold into where no difference would be observed. So, Cochrane Review rated this evidence as moderate, but that was a while ago, and thankfully, AGA reduced this quality to low. This is good. In addition, one of the good things that this guideline did is what it clearly acknowledged that it was a large number of trials that were registered but never published. Clearly, there's a strong potential for publication bias. If you have a negative probiotic trial, you ain't sending it to New England Journal, and many feel that it's probably not worth working on a manuscript that shows a negative result if you can only send it to the North Korean Journal of Irreproducible Results. Do I think probiotics one day will lead to something? I sure think so, but I don't know if we're even close to understanding what's going on. And this leads me to believe that whenever something does work, the effects will be rather marginal, if any. To gain a little more insight into this, I actually called Sony Pellid, who is an assistant attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering and assistant professor at Cornell in New York City, to help us understand the subject a little more, and he sure delivered. I hope you enjoyed this short interview. Hello, Jonathan Pellet from New York City. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller.
0: <laughs> so I've decided to review the new AGA clinical practice guideline on the role of probiotics in management of gastrointestinal disorders. I'm going to ask you the first question. Tell us exactly what you do and what qualifies you to weigh in on these things.
1: Well, I'm not a gastroenterologist, but I do study the microbiome in my professional life. I'm a bone marrow transplant attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and uh, I only do inpatient bone marrow transplant a few weeks a year. The rest of the time, I do microbiome research uh, in with human samples and some mouse work.
0: So you're not a stranger to probiotics?
1: I'm not a stranger to the concept of probiotics, and I'm involved with clinical trial design uh, around modulating the microbiome.
0: Okay, great. So... Let's start there, probiotics by very definition are supposed to have a positive effect on the host. What
1: if they don't? Do we still call them that? Why are we still using this ancient term? <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. I think that one of the ironies or the paradoxes of, of probiotics is, that it is exactly what you say, that we, we don't know the effect on the host. And actually, if you start peeling back the layers of the onion, there are many other problems besides just that we don't know what it actually does. Gets a little philosophical, but we don't even really know what they are.
0: Right. I mean, some of them irreversibly change the microbiome, right? As in the case of premature babies, right? So it's technically more could be potentially more important than medicine.
1: It could be, but it could also have zero effect whatsoever. Right. I mean, if you think about what a probiotic has to do, it has to be has to remain alive on the shelf at the pharmacy. Right. We don't know if it does that. Yeah. It has to survive the stomach acid. We don't know if it does that. It it has to either remain alive in the lower intestinal tract and secrete something or produce something before it's passaged out, or it needs to engraft in the complex microbiome community. All that is even upstream of when you start thinking about what's it actually doing to a particular disease. That's just the pharmacokinetics of of a drug, of a live bacterial therapeutic. So there's a very high bar to even get... A live biologic, therapeutic into and functioning in a human being's intestine.
0: Yeah. So the guidelines, thankfully, kind of agree with what you said, and they basically said don't use probiotics for anything unless it's in a clinical trial, except for two conditions. One of them is in kids, which we're not going to talk about, and the other one is in prevention of C. diff infection.
1: Well, I have to say, I, I peruse these guidelines. And by the way, when I say peruse, I'm taking advantage of the fact that peruse means both to read carefully and deeply and also to read cursorily. It's a, it's one of these words that is its own antonym. Yeah,
0: like empiric therapy.
1: <laughs> I peruse the guidelines, and I, I have to give the authors a lot of credit because they applied, as far as I can tell, all the rigorous methodology that exists to write a guideline statement, and it's accompanied by a massive uh, technical appendix yes. or a separate article with over 300 references. They, they did it very thoroughly and very carefully. And I think actually that that's, that's what led them to the conclusion that in most cases, you shouldn't do it unless you're participating in a clinical trial.
0: Right. So let's focus on the C. diff thing. Do you agree with that guideline statement that we should use them to prevent C. diff infection? What, what are your thoughts on this?
1: I would say that C. diff is an organism that is certainly an opportunist that takes advantage of disrupted microbial communities in the human gut. I completely agree with the concept that restoring a normal, diverse microbiome community is probably a good idea and has mechanistic appeal. And there is outstanding mouse evidence that there are Specific organisms that can confer what's referred to as colonization resistance against C. diff. And so that's very exciting. And promoting the growth of those organisms is a good idea broadly. But I think that the evidence base for commercially available probiotics in C. diff is largely based on low quality studies, by which I mean very small numbers, low incidence of C. diff in, this tri- in the trials themselves. And an enormous amount of heterogeneity in terms of what is the probiotic being studied.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: it, it's a fallacy to to, to consider probiotics a, as a monolithic entity. You know, a doctor tells a patient, "Oh, you should take a probiotic." Well, what does that mean? I mean, every single pro- producer of one takes it, assembles a different strain combination. We don't know exactly what's in each probiotic. I mean, it's listed on the canister. That's fine, but. What the recommendations should be uh, are vague.
0: Yeah, and I, I imagine it's going to be different from batch to batch as well.
1: There can be batch to batch variations. Although, in the, a point to make in favor of the argument, in favor of uh, the pro probiotic argument, is that the batch to batch variation in human fecal microbiota transplant which is uh essentially a standard therapy now for refractory C diff. Right. That certainly has batch to batch variation. Right. So at, at least probiotics that are produced in a factory at scale overcome that batch to batch variation. <laughs> what what would be, you know, th- I think the holy grail in the microbiome field is to make rationally designed probiotics where the specific strains for which there's evidence that they have a specific function and a specific disease are assembled into a therapeutic product. That that would really be the highest yielding right or, or at least you know uh, a, a promising therapy. And but by, by that uh, point, I think I, I have to disclose to your listeners that I have financial relationships with some companies that work on uh, these sort of therapies, including uh, series therapeutics and I've done consulting for Daterra.
0: Well, Tony, thank you for doing that. That's very important for our listeners to know. And I myself have $13 worth of financial conflict of interest over the last five years or so.
1: That was probably uh, espresso at a conference or something. Like I
0: that. actually, I, I swear to God, I didn't eat any food <laughs> from any rep, but apparently my name appeared on some list somewhere. But nonetheless, $13 it is.
1: <laughs> you know, I think that the disclosure of conflicts of, of, of pers- potential perceived conflicts of interest is, is a very important thing in our field. And we should do it accurately
0: you mean not as a slide that just uh, goes on the screen for three seconds uh, I mean, I, I've <laughs> been known
1: I've been known to flash my disclosures uh, <laughs> uh, ever so briefly when I'm giving a talk
0: we'll forgive you for that because you disclosed <laughs> today
1: <laughs> at, at our society the um, the conference organizers have taken it uh, meaning American Society of Hematology the conference organizers have taken that out of the hands of the investigators and the, our disclosure slide is pre-programmed and automatically displayed on the screen for a certain number of seconds. And we are powerless to even start our talk until that's done. Something
0: related to what you were talking about, different strains of probiotics. Is it true that some strains of probiotics potentially can carry antibiotic resistance genes?
1: I think that is uh, definitely a concern. I suspect that the companies that are assembling probiotics are not necessarily monitoring their strains and their material for that. That's probably not the biggest concern. Okay. I, I say that based on my intuition, not based on on me looking at specific data about specific probiotics. My my, my main concern about probiotics is not that they're going to cause harm, but more that they probably don't do much. At least, I mean, the commercially available ones nowadays.
0: Right. But I suspect that you don't give probiotics to your bone marrow transplant patients. Is that fair to say?
1: We do not. Uh, I And I don't in my practice.
0: Right. And I'm sure you give them antibiotics.
1: I give them massive doses of antibiotics for weeks on end, and I completely destroy, much to my chagrin, their healthy microbiomes. My primary research work is actually focused on trying to sort out what the negative consequences are for patients uh, as a result of that microbiome disruption, which you've profiled on your podcast in previous episodes.
0: That's right. For those of you who want to hear that discussion, go listen to episode 37 for the month of December 2019.
1: I, 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 w- I would say that One rationale that makes me largely suspicious of commercially available probiotics is sort of a microbiological one, and that is that most of the healthy commensal organisms in our intestines are anaerobes, in fact, strict anaerobes, and certainly the organisms that companies that make probiotics have selected to put in their probiotics are actually facultative anaerobes, meaning they can thrive under ambient oxygen conditions because they're easy to produce, they're easy to culture, and they have shelf life, supposedly, uh, sitting at the at the shelf in the pharmacy. Right.
0: Now, with this recommendation of using probiotics to prevent C. diff infection in patients receiving antibiotics, yes. should we ignore the science behind the work of Iran Elinov's lab, which suggests that post-antibiotic pro- probiotics delay microbiome reconstitution back to normal? What I'm asking, it seems that there's a great deal of publication bias when it comes to even these guidelines which kind of ignore some of the studies choose others when it comes to probiotics because i guess we all want them to work i mean it's in the name probiotic right what's your take on the current literature why do you think the science behind probiotics is so bad
1: i think that there are a lot of factors that drive uh that drive this one is what you mentioned the publication bias but there's the problem that probiotics are often regarded as a homogeneous entity uh, and ignores strain level uh, differences between different products. A lot of the studies that have been done have been small pilot studies that are underpowered. There's also an idea of this one size fits all therapy that this probiotic is going to have all these various health benefits. It's going to quote unquote, <laughs> boost your immune system unquote. It's going to b- restore balance. It's going to do everything. It's going do everything that it that it needs to do. But in reality, you know, not only is the dysbiosis of every different disease probably slightly different, the resident community of each patient is slightly different, and in fact differs over time. And as I mentioned at the outset, that the, the a, a putative probiotic needs to engraft in the patient's microbial community, and it needs to be tailored to the particular type of dysbiosis that's associated with the disease the patient has. So the idea that just a probiotic on the shelf will work. It's it's uh, it makes it kind of like a vitamin. You know, it, it's for whatever ails you. Yeah, those are some of the reasons that the quality of the research of many of the studies that have been done, not all, on probiotics, uh, hasn't risen to that level. And in some cases, very very large, well-designed studies have been disappointingly negative. For example, the the pair of Studies in the New England Journal on uh, probiotic for pediatric uh, acute gastroenteritis, those were two large, well-designed studies that were unfortunately negative.
0: Yes, and these were included in these guidelines, thankfully. Yep. Well, thanks so much for answering my questions. Is there anything you want to say that I didn't ask you that's important for my audience to know about probiotics, C. diff, or anything else in general?
1: I think that uh, patients always want to know what can i do to make this better in terms of modulating my diet or things that i can do that i see commercials about or that i see being hawked at me at the grocery store certainly in oncology in my field not a single new patient visit goes by without the patients or their families asking what diet should i eat doctor to make my cancer better i mean that is just that, that is that is the sine qua non of a new patient uh, encounter in oncology, and I'm and I'm I'm sure it's the same yes uh, for for the gastroenterology Absolutely. listeners, yeah, in your field. So probiotics just they they just they resonate with patients as as something that's gonna cure what ails them, and I, I think that in the long term approaches to manipulating the microbiome do have a lot of promise. But it has to be done in a rational way, and it has to be done through well-designed clinical trials and not just whatever the vendors of the Walgreens out there are putting on the shelves. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearl's The Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review Podcast. This was episode 44 for the month of October 2020. Let me know if you have any articles you want me to review, or if you have any suggestions or comments, email me at info at or follow me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. And if you haven't left me a review on iTunes, please do so. It really, really helps. We are at 149 reviews right now. One more would be amazing. Thanks again. Bye-bye.